Welcome to the Central Christian Church Podcast. We pray this message helps you find and follow Jesus. If you would like to connect with us more, please visit us at centralsj.org. How many of you guys could use some good news? Yeah. I know I could. We could all use some good news. And the good news is that the whole book of Romans is really about the best news that humanity has ever heard. It's, it's the, the gospel according to Paul, and the gospel is, is the good news. And so we're continuing our series through this amazing book, uh, the book of Romans. And today we land in chapter four of this amazing book. And this, this text today is vital for us to understand uh, because a lot of people, whenever it comes to salvation, uh, we don't necessarily have a biblical understanding of what salvation is. How do we attain it? How do we live it? What does it mean? How does it impact our life today? And how does it impact our life tomorrow? And therefore, we end up living a life that is much less than what God desires for us and what we would desire to, to live out as well. So Romans 4 is truly one of the greatest passages in all of the Bible because it clearly lays out how you and I can receive this amazing gift of of salvation. So before we jump into the text, I want to give a bit of uh, a backdrop. I'm going to share some, some terms uh, that, that may be very foreign to some of you, may be familiar to some of you, but I thought about trying to repackage these terms to help us maybe understand a little better in our modern day vernacular, but I thought, hey, the central family smart people and we can all increase our understanding. So we're going to, might, might learn some new terms today and just what they mean uh, to help us understand uh, the richness, the fullness of what takes place at salvation and to understand exactly what Jesus has done for us more fully. So, so there's really, we could look at salvation in three parts, uh, three parts. So Paul's going to unpack this for us, uh, three parts to salvation. The first part is justification. He's going to talk about this in Romans chapter four and chapter five. The first part is justification. The next part is, is sanctification. Now, that might be a new term for some of us. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But Paul's going to talk about the sanctification process in Romans 6 through 7. And then the final uh, stage of salvation is the glorification. And Paul's going to talk about that in Romans 8. And so in a very real sense, we could, we could describe salvation as past, present, and future. It's good news in the past, it's good news in the present, and it's good news for our future. The first term here is, is justification. And justification uh, takes place at, at salvation. So we could say, uh, for me, I, I got saved in August uh, 2001. So it's been, it makes me feel old saying that out loud, but, but it's, it's back in the day. So I could say I, I was saved. Uh, for some of you, maybe it doesn't seem that, that far, but... For me, it does. Uh, uh, so, so I was saved at that time. So it took place in the past. At that moment, when I put my faith in Jesus, surrendered my life to him, all my sins, past, present, and future, were justified, were, were atoned for, were, were taken care of at the cross. Justification uh, took place. Let's go back to the previous slide real quick. And so that's the first part of salvation. That takes place in the past. Uh, the second part is sanctification. Now, this takes place in the present. Uh, sanctification, once we've had our sins forgiven, uh, it's the, the honor, it's the joy, it's, it's our, 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 our part we play in aligning our life with Jesus. 
And so this is where we, we strive to practice the ways of Jesus. We come to this understanding, God, I see what your, the word says and I try to apply it to my life. Now we're not perfect in that process. Uh, one thing we say here at Central is that we're all imperfect people in process. Uh, what we could say instead of that is that we're all in this process of sanctification. But the reason we don't say it that way is because no one would understand what we're talking about. Uh, so we say we're imperfect people in process, which is really a declaration of we're in this process of sanctification. We're not who we used to be, thank God for that, but we're not who we will be one day. And we're thankful for that too. We're in process. And so we're, we're striving to live the life of Jesus. And let me just say this, we, we can experience justification, but if you're not trying to live the life that Jesus lived, then your salvation experience will be far less than what God desires for it to be. Uh, Jesus said this, I came to give you life and life to the fullest. The fullness of God, the, the fullness of salvation, that we, we experience the abundant life by trying to align our life with Jesus. And for me, uh, I, you know, I, I, my previous understanding of scripture, I believed, I believed in Jesus, uh, but I wasn't really sure about living the life of Jesus. And whenever I started striving to do that, all of a sudden it was like, Oh my gosh, this is awesome. This is better than, than drugs, better than the sex, better than everything else that I thought would satisfy and bring me hope and pleasure. It was found in this, this second part of the salvation experience, sanctification, align our lives with Jesus. And then the third part is wonderful. It's glorification. Uh, the old timers uh, used to call this the blessed hope. It's this idea that this life is not all there is. It's having this understanding that whenever these physical bodies of ours wear out, God is going to give us a new body, a restored body, a body that's not been contaminated, hasn't been corroded by sin's effect. We'll have bodies that can withstand the very presence of God. It's going to be amazing. It's glorification. Bodies that will never wear out for all of eternity. It's good news. Jolie gets it because she's looking forward to a new body. Like she, she's got some hurts, some, some, some aches, some pains. Listen, it's temporary. It's temporary. This is part of the salvation experience. So justification takes place in the past. Sanctification is taking place right here, right now. But we look forward to the day when we'll be glorified with God in heaven, receive glorified bodies. It's amazing. All that takes place in what we call salvation. All that is part of the good news. Uh, the justification. So Romans chapter four and five, Paul is talking about the first part of that process, justification. He's going to talk about these other uh, two as well. But the first part he talks about is justification in chapter four. That's what we're looking at today. So here's a definition for us. There's a lot of definitions we could look at. We're going to look at a couple more next week. But for, um, for our purposes today, here, here's the definition we're working with. I think it's in your notes if you have your program Simply this, justification is the act of God whereby he forgives the unsaved person's sin and now imputes. Now, I don't, you probably didn't use the word impute this week. Um, so I give you a couple others here. So, so he imputes or he, he credits, he assigns to them the righteousness of Christ. That's good news. I don't know about you, but, but Paul's been making this case in Romans 1, 2, and 3 that we're in bad shape. Like he's, he's like a prosecuting attorney, and he's, he's stated a pretty clear case, a whole lot of evidence, how you and I were subject to God's wrath. We're worthy of wrath. Why? Because Paul makes this declaration, there's no one righteous, not even one. In and of ourselves, our righteous account is bankrupt. 
We're bankrupt. But at salvation, God not only forgives our sin, but he directs, he imputes, he assigns, he, he credits our account with the righteousness of Christ. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's the best news anyone's ever heard. So three components of justification, three components of, of this. The first component is that God forgives our sin. For us to have an understanding of salvation, we need to understand that, that when we put our faith in him, when we experience salvation, our sin is forgiven, past, present, and future. Psalm 103 verse 12 says this, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sin and transgression from us. Gone, erased, like eradicated. How far is the east from the west? Like they never touch again. That's how far he's removed your sin, your shame, your, what could condemn you in the courts of heaven. He's removed it from your account. Case file erased, forgiven, which is wonderful. And that's where most of the time we stop and we say, isn't that tremendous? And it is tremendous, but it's not all. You can forgive someone and not have relationship with them, right? We, we can forgive someone, but it doesn't mean they have right standing with us. And that's the true of, of God as well. So we can be forgiven, but the second part is wonderful. And that's where God credits, assigns, or imputes Christ's righteousness to our account. Again, we've been bankrupt. Like if you've ever experienced bankruptcy, you know the emotion of that. You know how it feels to have creditors constantly calling you and have nothing in your account to offer them. That's kind of how we are before God. We, we, he, he desires, he demands righteousness. The righteous, we, without righteousness, no one will see God, the Bible says. So, so, so how do we get that? We can't work for it, we can't attain it. But the good news of the gospel is that, that part of salvation, part of receiving justification is that, that Christ's righteousness, his righteous life has now been assigned to you. Therefore, you can come boldly before the throne of grace. Therefore, when we, we lay on death's bed, we, we approach that season with no fear. Why? Not because of anything I've done, but because he's given me the cloak of right. He's clothed me in his righteousness. The righteousness of Christ has been assigned to your account, to my account. It's salvation. It's, it's wonderful, wonderful news. At salvation, you and I are declared righteous. That's important for us to realize the distinction. It's not that I am righteous in that moment. I've been declared righteous. Two very different things. I haven't earned it. I don't deserve it. But God has assigned it. He's imputed. He has credited it to my account, to your account. The third component is that uh, the only way for people to receive justification is through faith. The only way for you to be forgiven, the only way for me to be forgiven the only way for us to experience justification, the only way for us to have Christ's righteousness assigned to our account is by putting our faith in, in Jesus. We can't earn it. We can't work for it. Nothing we can do to, to balance the scales. It's only through faith. So, so what is faith? I've had people say, man, it's, you're a pastor. Wow. Like, how'd that happen? I'm like, that's a good question. I'm not really sure. Um, uh, but, but they're like, well, you're a person of faith. Good for you. I'm not. I'm just not a person of faith. I don't know how that even works. And I'm like, wow, well, that's interesting. Because uh, I think everyone can be a person of faith. I think we, faith is something that, that is within reach for all of us. And so what is faith and how do we attain it? Well, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. 
It is the evidence of things that we cannot see. And so we can have understanding cognitively of what faith is, but how do we grasp it? How do we apply it? What is, how, how do we, we, we bring it down to our level where we can actually live a life of faith? Well, in your program, in your notes, uh, I've given you an ac- uh, acrostic, uh, yeah, acrostic poem, there it is. Um, I almost said an acronym, but that would be far off. Uh, it's an acrostic that spells faith. And so, so just to help us understand what, what faith is, how do we attain it? Um, hopefully this helps you. Uh, the F stands for facts. Faith doesn't ignore the facts. Faith actually leans into the facts. And the more we understand the facts, the more it builds our faith. Uh, whenever we look to uh, the Bible, how do we know that the Bible is God's word? Well, the facts lend itself to that. We don't just blindly trust that this is God's word, but the facts actually speak to that. Uh, The Bible is unique and the Bible is unified. The Bible is unique in the fact that it is the number one best-selling book in the history of humanity. That alone makes this a very unique document. It's unique in the sense that the Bible is not one book, but the Bible is 66 books written by over 40 different authors. Those authors were scholars, kings, also fishermen, shepherds, prophets, very well-educated, very uneducated men throughout history. And by the way, it wasn't just like, hey boys, let's get together in a room and write this thing we're gonna call the Bible. No, the Bible was written over 1,500 years, a long period of time, not in the same geographic region either, but from other countries and different, different pockets. But in the midst of that, 66 different books written by over 40 different authors with different education levels over a span of 1,500 years, the Bible is this unified story of God's redemptive power, of God's plan for you, God's plan for humanity. It's, it's unique and it's unified. We don't ignore those facts. We actually lean into the facts and say, wow, This must be God's word to us. I'm gonna trust it and therefore I can apply it to my life. Whenever it comes to Jesus, how do we know Jesus is the savior of the world? We don't turn a blind eye to the facts. No, we lean into the facts and say, what do the facts say? Uh, Tiffany talked last week uh, about prophecies and one of the greatest uh, cases, one of the greatest facts for the foundation of of Jesus, be it is who he said he was, was was prophecies, over 350 prophecies in the Old Testament. And that's a conservative number. Over 350 and all of them written at least 500 years prior to Christ's arrival here on earth. But down to the details, prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, One statistician, um, (laughs) man, today's one of those days. Too much coffee. That's what I say to myself anyway. Um, So one statistician uh, did some research and said, hey, uh, what was the probability? What's the probability of of by chance, just by chance, an individual fulfilling eight of those prophecies? The chances of an individual just by chance fulfilling eight of those is one in 10 to the 17th power or, or, or one in... 10 with 17 zeros behind it. And that's just eight of them. There's over 350 and that's a conservative number in and of itself. And so faith doesn't ignore the facts. Faith looks at the facts and says, wow, if that's the reality, then maybe there's something to this Jesus thing. Maybe I should lean into this. Maybe I can actually trust that he is who he said he was. Maybe, maybe I can align my life to his. And really that's whenever I'll experience the abundant life that he promised. 
me. Faith doesn't ignore the facts. Faith leads into it. When we hear God's word, uh, faith is birth. One of the reasons we're such big proponents of of reading the Bible, whenever we read the Bible, uh, faith begins to birth in our hearts. Right now, media, uh, listen to teachings that unpack the Bible, like it builds our, our faith. Faith is born when we hear facts about the gospel, when we hear facts about our sinful condition before a holy God. Faith is birthed. Whenever we hear the good news about what Jesus has done, faith is birthed. Faith doesn't ignore the facts. We lean into the facts. Second, A, is agree. We don't just know the facts, but we actually agree with the facts. Faith not only knows the facts, but faith says, yep, I understand that, and I agree. Faith says, I know what the facts say about my sinful nature and what my sin deserves, and I agree. Faith says, I understand what Jesus did for me on the cross. I understand those facts, and I agree. Faith says, I know the facts about what God's word has promised me. And I don't just know them intellectually, but I agree with them, and it anchors my hope. It builds my faith. Faith looks at the facts. Faith not only knows the facts, but faith agrees with the facts. And then I, faith, individualizes that. It's not just for everyone else, but it's personal for me. If the facts say all have sinned and fallen short of God's standards, then I must be one of the all, and I've fallen short. If faith says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, then I must be one of those too, and I will call on the name of the Lord. If faith says, if facts say that that this is true for, for humanity, then I insert myself into that narrative. We individualize it. We insert ourselves into the gospel message. T is we trust We trust. I don't just know the facts. I don't just agree with the facts. I individualize the facts and I trust it to be true. I trust them to be true for me. If the Bible says that that, that there's a righteousness that's available to you apart from works, then do you trust that? For many of us, we trust what we can do. And so even though we know cognitively that the only way for us to be be saved or to receive salvation or right standing with God is, is by grace through faith. We understand that cognitively, but yet somehow we continue to make lists in our minds, right? I talk to people and they're like, hey, once I quit smoking, then I'm going to get baptized. And I'm like, well, why are you waiting to quit smoking to get baptized? Like, I don't, I just, I don't think smoking is going to send you to hell. Like, I think it might make you smell like hell, but it's not going to send you there. I don't think you quitting smoking is going to give you like added bonus points to tip the scale. So like now God is, is super pleased with you. I don't think that's the way it works. But a lot of times, maybe you're on your list isn't smoking, but maybe it's something else. And we feel like, man, if I do this, 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 and this, then I'll be right with God. Then I can be involved in church. Then I can move forward and take next steps that I know I should be taking. And I would just say that's, that's a wrong understanding of salvation. Do you trust that what Jesus did for you on the cross took care of your sins, past, present, future. That's not just true for your spouse. That's not just true for the person sitting next to you. That's not just true for for those people out there. Do you trust that to be true for you? Do we trust? We're made worthy. We're made right with God by trusting in Jesus Christ alone, not trusting in our list. Uh, H is hope. And so so once we look at the facts, once we we, we, agree with the facts, we individualize the facts, we trust, it leads to a whole lot of hope. It's anticipating what's to come. I think we have the full acrostic here. Uh, whenever we, we, we go through these steps, when we take these steps, it, it leads to, to faith. And the final one is hope. Uh, not just hope for today, but certainly hope for tomorrow. If we believe that, that, that God directs the steps of the righteous, 
then, then we believe that we have hope today that he's directing our steps. Not because we, we've lived a right life, but because our righteousness comes from, from him. We believe that God is working on our behalf for our better, for our good. Whether we see him working or not, it leads to a life of, of, of hope. And so if that's faith, then, then, then let's look at how do we live that out so that we can be people who receive salvation, receive justification, all the good things. So, so Romans 4. Romans 4, uh, Paul's going to reference uh, two Old Testament dudes, two dudes from the Old Testament. One is Abraham and one is David. And a lot of times when we think of people who uh, received or experienced salvation in the Old Testament, we think that somehow it's different than the New Testament. But every man, every woman in the Old Testament that was made right with God, every person in the New Testament today that's made right with God, they approach God the same way. And that's that's by faith, and that's what Paul's going to talk to us about. And oftentimes, whenever people talk about faith in the, in the Bible, they often bring up Abraham. And Abraham is known as the father of our faith. In the New Testament, in the Old Testament, Abraham is referred to as a friend of God. And so Paul reaches for this man of faith. And he pulls him into this narrative and says, let's examine Abraham. How is Abraham made right with God. So here it is in Romans 4 and verse 1. Matter of fact, why don't we stand to our feet as we read this out loud in honor of God's word. Romans 4 and verse 1. It says, what then? What then? Hold, hold on. We're going to, sorry, I should have clarified this. So we're going to read it out loud in just a second. So he says, what then? Uh, but he refers back to what he just said in Romans chapter 3, verse uh, 21 and, through 31. And he's just made this case. So, so he's been talking about God's wrath. There's no one righteous, not even one. But then he says, now salvation's revealed. Like, like the, the, the people can be justified through faith and it's awesome. And he's continuing that, that strand of thought. He's continuing that, that line of thinking whenever we come to Romans chapter four. And so now let's read it out loud together. Sorry. He says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? That's what we're going to discover today. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the men and women of faith that have blazed a trail before us so we can examine their life and see how you, we can live in right relationship with you today. So, God, I pray you'd open your word, that, God, you'd speak to our hearts, that, God, we'd live it out. We wouldn't just understand it, but, God, we'd agree with it. We'd individualize it. We'd trust it. And it lead to hope in our daily life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. And so, so what did Abraham discover in this matter? What did Abraham discover whenever it comes to having a, a right standing, a right relationship with God? Here it is in, in verse 2. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. And so he's saying, let, let's, let's look at Abraham. Was he justified by, by works? If so, he had something to, to boast about. So in other words, like if Abraham kept God's law perfectly, if Abraham lived a perfect life, then man, he'd have something to be proud of. He'd have something to boast about. He'd say, man, I saved, I saved myself because I'm such a good person. I lived a perfect life. I'm not an imperfect person in process. I am a perfect person. That, that's what Abraham could say, but he couldn't boast about it before God because he's, He's the perfect one. And so, so he goes on to say in, in verse two, you could have something to boast, but not before God. That could literally be translated inconceivable. Not in like the princess bride sense of the word inconceivable, <laughs> but in the sense of it's unfathomable. It, like, like for anyone to keep God's law perfect, for anyone to live such a good life that they save themselves, even for Abraham, that's inconceivable. That, that's, that, that's impossible. If so, he could boast about it, but not not before God. Verse three, 
It says, what does scripture say? Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. How did Abraham have right standing with God? He believed, he trusted, he put his faith and then a righteousness was credited. Righteousness was assigned. Righteousness was imputed to Abraham's account. Abraham didn't have an account balance of righteousness. No, it was deposited, not from himself, but a credit to his account. This is an interesting, interesting passage. If you uh, might write down Genesis 15, Genesis 15, and maybe read Genesis 15 later today or uh, maybe tomorrow. But, but Paul is actually quoting from Genesis 15 here in Romans chapter 4. And when we come to Genesis 15, it's one of the most epic documents of Abraham's life. It's one of the most thrilling accounts of Abraham's life. And we don't have time to read it, but I'm just going to summarize it for you. Uh, in Genesis chapter 15, uh, God appears to Abraham and says, Abraham, step outside. And at this point in Abraham's life, Abraham and Sarah didn't have any kids. They longed to have kids, uh, but they weren't able to. It was a very much a, a shame in that culture to not be able to. And so they felt the weight of this. And so uh, God tells Abraham, step outside. And he said, hey, look up at the stars, Abraham, and start counting them. If indeed you can count them. And you just got to imagine Abraham in this moment, like one, two, and then 2010, 2011. And it, like you, you, there's infinite number of stars in the sky at this point. And God tells Abraham, that's how many your offspring will be. And Abraham could have responded in one of two ways. God, you got the wrong dude. I don't know if you know, but me and Sarah, we've been trying and we can't. But here's what Abraham did. Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him. It was assigned to him. Righteousness was imputed into his account because he believed that God is a God who does the impossible. And here's what continues on in that chapter. In chapter 15, uh, God is going to cut a covenant with Abraham. And the way this would take place back in the day, whenever a, a stronger king would conquer a weaker king, the weaker king would take animals and he would cut them in half and he would lay the halves open and create a pathway. So imagine this, there's half of a ram, half of a ram, half of a sheep, half of a sheep, uh, half of uh, the animals lining this path. And the weaker king would then walk that path before the stronger king. And certainly blood would be filling their sandals all over their feet. But as they walk that path, they'd be making a declaration. I pledge my loyalty to you. I'm gonna be faithful to you. I'm under your authority. If, if I break my covenant with you, if I rebel against you, then you can do to me what I've done to these animals. That would have been a clear understanding in that culture. The weaker king would walk a covenant path to the stronger king. Now check this out in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Genesis, uh, Genesis 15, verse 6. Let's pull it up real quick. Uh, the next one, please. Yeah, so the Lord said to him, Bring a heifer, that's a cow, for some of you that don't know that. Uh, bring me a heifer, a, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Now Abraham, is, he realizes this, God's made a promise. The king of kings has appeared to him. He's cutting a covenant with me. Can you believe it? And Abraham's preparing this pathway to walk a path before the king of kings. It's amazing. Can you imagine the emotion that Abraham must have felt in this moment? But then the unthinkable happens. 
God does not invite Abraham to walk the path to him. But the king of kings walks the path to Abraham. Saying, Abraham, I'm so committed to keeping my word to you that Abraham, even if you break this covenant with me, I'll be the one who sacrificed. Even if you don't keep your word, I'm so committed to keeping my word to you that you can tear me into pieces. Did Abraham keep his covenant? No. That's why we read this in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgression, Abraham's rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's path and followed our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed, treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. Abraham didn't even keep the covenant. So God sacrificed himself. He did it for Abraham. He did it for you. He did it for me because he's the covenant-keeping God. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. And I believe that Abraham knew God was so committed to keeping this covenant. And Abraham knew, without a doubt, just as you and I do, when we break God's covenant, we step out of bounds. And so I think Abraham knew that one day there would be sacrifice. One day that there would be a way for him to be made right with the Lord from a righteousness not his own. Uh, here's why I say that. Jesus, whenever he was talking to the religious leaders, uh, he said this in John 8, 56. He says, your father, Abraham, talking about, about this Abraham we just read about, he rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. In summary, how, how did Abraham, how was Abraham made right with God? It wasn't his flawless list keeping. It wasn't his perfect lifestyle. Abraham had righteousness assigned to him. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse four, now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Everyone that has had a job or will have a job in the future, uh, here's how those things tend to work. Uh, they'll say, I'll pay you this amount of money for you to do A, B, C, and D. And whenever you get your paycheck, you don't think, wow, what a gift. Like, it is a gift that you got a job. That's a blessing, all that stuff. But, but they're just fulfilling what they agreed to, right? Like they said, if I do this, they'll pay me this. So it's not a gift, but it's an, an obligation. Uh, verse five, however, the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. The same word used of Abraham is the same word used here. It's assigned, it's credited, it's imputed to your account as, as righteousness. Uh, we can't earn right standing with God. It's a gift. It's credited. Uh, Eugene Peterson was a pastor and a scholar. He's a, a great scholar of original languages, Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek. And he translated the Bible. We know it as the message paraphrase of the message Bible. But he translated it for his congregation to understand uh, some of these more difficult, deep theological truths of Scripture. And here's how he paraphrased uh, what we just read in Romans. Uh, here it is, the message version, 4 through 5. says, if you're, a hard, if you're a hard worker and do a good job, you deserve your pay. We don't call your wages a gift, 
But if you see that the job is too big for you, if you see that keeping God's law without fault is too big of an assignment, if you see that that job description is like overwhelming and you don't feel like you can live a perfect life, then here's an alternative. That it's something only God can do and you trust him to do it. You can never do it for yourself no matter how hard or how long you worked. Well, that trusting him to do it is what gets you set right with God, by God, a sheer gift. How do we receive salvation? How do we receive right standing with God? We trust him to do it. Right standing with God, by God, a sheer gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, says, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And that's not even from yourselves. It's a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Salvation is a gift of grace through faith. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. The lists are great, but don't think that by keeping the list, you're going to earn right standing with God. We keep lists. We try to follow God and say, God, I want to align my life with you because I realize you have saved me. And I realize by aligning my life with you, that's where I'll experience the abundant life that you promised. You're my creator. When I live according to my design, I'll flourish, but not so we can earn right standing with God. Romans 4, 5, but people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. Verse six, uh, David also spoke of this. So now Paul, he shifts away from talking about Abraham, the father of our faith, uh, a friend of God. Now he says, what, what does King David have? Like King David was Israel's greatest king. Uh, king David was known as a, a friend or a man after God's own heart is what he's labeled in, in the Bible. So how does a man after God's own heart receive right standing with God? He says, David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working. Here's the good news that hopefully brings some happiness, brings some joy. You can experience a right relationship with God and you don't have to earn it. Like you can't work for it. You know, I'm not like you could sacrifice all the animals you want. Like Peter won't be super excited about it, but it's not going to earn you right standing with God. We could do a bunch of lists, do's and don'ts. It's not going to earn right standing with God. And so Paul says, man, how, how happy are those who understand the gospel truth? How, how, how happy are those who have a fundamental understanding that salvation is by grace through faith? And in that text, he's quoting a Psalm of David. He's quoting Psalm 32. And at this time, and David writes Psalm 32, he's already had an affair with Bathsheba. He, he's, he's an adulterer. And it wasn't just like a, a quiet thing, like he's the king of Israel. So like people found out about it, but, but David tried to hide it. And so Bathsheba's like, hey, you know that thing we did? Well, I, I'm pregnant. I got a baby on the way. And so David's like, well, let's bring your husband home from battle. And so they, you guys can sleep together and it'll cover my tracks. And uh, yeah, Uriah, some of you, her husband was like this man of honor, man of character. And he's like, no, my men are on the battlefield. It'd be wrong for me to enjoy some of those comforts. And, uh, and so he doesn't sleep with his wife. And so how does David reward a man of integrity, a man of honor that serves him so faithfully? He had him killed, had him killed to cover up his own tracks. So now David's an adulterer. Uh, David's like this big hypocrite, this imposter who's, who's, who's tried to cover up his, his sin. Now he's a murderer who's had this good dude executed. And David wrote Psalm 103 or Psalm 32 rather. Oh, what joy 
for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. The bummer about David is his sins are documented for all of humanity to read. But what about you? No one's righteous, not even one. We've all done stuff that we wouldn't be super proud of if it was documented for someone to read on a Sunday morning. But how happy, how, what, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. We kind of get a sense of the weight of that with David, but do you feel the weight for you? Do you feel the joy, therefore, for you? Do you feel the happiness for you of having your sins erased? For many people coming to a place like this and because of maybe some sin that took place this week, or maybe something that took place even more recent. We come into a place of worship and rather than lifting a voice, our voices with a shout of triumph, rather than than lifting our hands as men and women that have been set free from sin's corrosion and corruption, we stand in silence, feeling the shame and the weight of our guilt. And here's the challenge for you and challenge for me is that, that you have a very real enemy. He's called the accuser of the brethren. And what he does is he accuses you and me, tries to remind us of how we've blown it, remind us of sins of the past, remind us of all of our shortcomings. And so we come into this place and so we just hang our heads with shame. But David says, hey, wait a minute. It was never about what you could do. You could never earn it. It wasn't about you keeping all the list. What joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven whose sins the Lord has put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. How was Abraham made right with the Lord? Believed God, credited to him as righteous. How how was David made right with God? He was made right apart from, from working for it. And so for us just to come back to this understanding where there's freedom, where there's there's joy unspeakable, is coming back to a fundamental understanding that it was never about my earning right standing with God. It was always about what Jesus has done for me. And if you've lost your joy, maybe it's because you've forgotten just what he's done for you. If you live life under a dark cloud of shame and regret, then come back to a fundamental understanding of the gospel that was never about you in the first place. You can be forgiven clothed, credited in the righteousness of Christ and have a future hope in heaven for all of eternity apart from works. I close with this passage in Colossians 2 through 13 through 14. It says, when you were stuck in your old sin, sin dead life, you were incapable of responding to God, but God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it. Think of it. That's a good action step for all of us this week. Just to spend some time thinking about it. Thinking about what he's rescued us from. Thinking about his radical grace. Thinking about how on the cross, Jesus takes all your sin, all your shame, and he laid it on Christ. And in that moment, Christ paid the penalty that you owe. So that now, before God, you can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He treated Jesus as your sins deserve, so now he treats you as only Jesus deserves. That's the gospel. Think of it. 
All sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, the old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to the cross. When the enemy reminds you of your past, you can remind him of the cross. When shame, regret, from not only letting God down, for most of us, our great challenge with shame is we let ourselves down. We let people we love down. Therefore, it's hard for us to forgive ourselves. But I would just submit to you, if the King of Kings has forgiven you, if your slate's been wiped clean, the old arrest warrant's been canceled and nailed to the cross, maybe we can be men and women who come to this place where we're able to forgive ourselves and live in the freedom that Christ purchased for you on the cross. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we just thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you, God, for your radical grace, for your rescuing power. God, for anyone here who's had their head hanging low in shame after putting their faith in you, God, I pray that you bring all of us to a place where we realize that we're justified before you because of what Jesus did on the cross, not because we've somehow earned it. God, that it's not about our works, but it's about your grace. And God, for those here in the room that have not experienced salvation, pray God today would be the day that they would put their faith in you, that they trust the facts and they'd personalize it. They trust that and they'd experience the hope that only comes from knowing you. So as you continue with your head bowed, eyes closed, Paul's later going to write in that book of Romans, that letter, he's going to tell people how they can experience salvation. And he says that if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you will be saved. And so if you've explored the facts and you say, Jesus, I believe that what you did on the cross forgives my sin, that you paid the penalty for my sin. And I believe it didn't just end on the cross, but you rose again. If that's where you are, you believe that, then it's time for you to put your faith in him, to declare your allegiance to him, uh, to say, God, I'm trusting you with my life and I'm gonna live for you. If that's where you are, I invite you to talk to God, say a prayer uh, to God, something like this, say, God, I realize my sin has separated me from you. I realize I've blown it and that's obvious to me. Uh, but God, I also realize that you're a God who forgives sin. And God, I believe on the cross that Jesus paid the penalty that I owe. I believe it didn't just end on the cross, but God, I believe you rose again. Now God, because you're alive, I'm asking you to come alive in me. Because you laid down your life for me, Today, God, I'm laying down my life for you. Whatever you want me to do, I'm in. I'm on, I'm for that. I'm gonna try my best to serve you in a way that's pleasing to you. I give you my life today. As you continue to pray with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I'd love to pray for you if that was your prayer before we get out of here. Um, but would you slip up your hand, show me who I'm praying for. Show God you're coming with him. Yep, thanks, thanks, thanks. Jesus, you see all the hands reaching out to you. And God, you know exactly where they are and exactly what they need. And ultimately what they need more than anything, Jesus, is just you and your radical grace. So God, I pray you come like a flood into their hearts and minds right now by your Holy Spirit. Let them know that your presence is with them. And God, as they've acknowledged sin, confessed it to you, asked for forgiveness, they come under your banner, under your, your authority, they're making you the leader and the forgiver of their life. Come and they experience forgiveness like they never have before. Would you remove the shame, I pray. Give them a clear conscience to serve you. Let them know, remind them the slate's been wiped clean. 
sins forgiven, past erased. God, would you strengthen them in the way that only you can, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's give it up for those people that made that spiritual commitment. That's awesome.